I ask everybody how their summer is going, and everybody says it's going great. So there you go. And some people are celebrating the end of summer, it looks like, because we've got a few empty seats. So unless they're arriving late, it's going to be us. So if you want to move up a little bit, that would be great. I was struck by a thought from Henri Nouwen, who observed perhaps perhaps the main task of a pastor is to prevent people from suffering for the wrong reasons. And I'm not sure if it's the main task, but that is what I am trying to do in this series, especially at the end of it. I'm not sure uh, I can take away all your pain because uh, some pain is just necessary. But not all of it. Many people experience agony and a certain amount of frustration trying to find God's perfect will, and I would love to relieve you of some of that pain. Uh, I'm talking about the pain of trying to find God's exact will in matters where the Bible leaves things open, as well as the pain that often follows that. The heavy burden of thinking that you might have missed God's will and you are, uh, I don't know, forever afloat in some twilight zone where, where God is reluctant to bless you. Such suffering is not necessary. We began this whole series by talking about Jake and the red couch. Oh, man, all those late-night phone calls that I got from Jake. It took Jake weeks of hand-wringing to decide something as simple as furniture. And we think about decisions that certainly was not the highest one, but he was afraid that he would make a mistake and that he would either incur the wrath of his wife or the wrath of God, and I'm not sure which one scared him the most. But uh, to my knowledge, the only person who really got a little mad at Jake was me. Um, This decision for Jake, I mean, felt like torment because he had no sure source of guidance. And I wasn't going to pick out a couch for him. I mean, that is not my department. Maybe recommend a good commentary with a red cover. But so here's Jake. Jake could have consoled himself that the sovereign God had a plan that will not allow ultimate purposes to be thwarted, not even by a neurotic anxiety about furniture. But Jake thought he needed more than that. Uh, we looked in the Bible. I said, you know, Jake, maybe there's some direction there. there were, we found couches of gold and silver, which he could not afford. And then there was the love couch in Song of Solomon, which is green. And he thought about that. I said, no, that's not going to work. The best verse that I found for him was Psalm 6.6. I drench my couch with my tears. Well, I think we should ease up on poor Jake because uh, there have been times when we have all been uh, at the edge of our seat, biting our nails. Uh, we've got an important decision to make, and, and we do want to know what God expects of us. Um, the church office often gets uh, calls, but people want us to pray for a son or a daughter who is in the midst of a decision, like a, um, maybe a college choice or some special job. Uh, Usually what we're dealing with are two or more equally biblical alternatives. For instance, you could, um, you could go on a mission trip or not. The, neither would be a violation of Scripture. You could keep trying to have a child or adopt. Or there are two th- or three people that you could marry. I don't mean at the same time, but two or three people that meet the biblical criteria and their possibilities. So which one, if any, should you pursue? 
you just put their names in a hat and uh, hope that God guides your fingers to pick out the right one? Um, should the basketball star who has a full ride offers from eight different colleges do the same thing? Or maybe, maybe she puts out a fleece, maybe numbers the colleges from one to eight and then arranges with God that when she opens her Bible and points that whatever number comes up first, you know, so I just got a seven. There it is. And that would be God's perfect draft choice. Well, we could uh, pose this as a question that I think might, might help. Let's just ask it like this. Are you in God's will right now? I mean right now in your life. Oh, forget about the future right now, trying to find God's will, but are you in God's will right now? Well, you're all in church. So of course you are. Forsake not the assembling together. So you're good on that. Hebrews 10. But seriously, you might answer this question differently depending on which column uh, of our notes that you're dealing with. Depending on whether you're dealing with the sovereign will of God or whether you're dealing with the moral will of God or if you're dealing with what we're going to call the individual or specific will of God. Are you in God's will as far as God's sovereign will is concerned? And the answer is always, always. No one is ever out of God's will when it comes to his ultimate plan, down to the smallest details, both good and bad. Not even the guys in the county jail, not even the devil can avoid God's sovereign will. But now if you ask the question from the middle column, from the standpoint of God's moral will, you have to say, partly, only partly. And that would be all of us. Because uh, no one sins as much as they could, not even Hitler. And vice versa, no one except Jesus has ever obeyed 100% of the time. And so you are in God's moral will to the extent that you are obedient. So partly is our best answer, although not a happy one. We wish it were all the time, but not yet. Now, then there's the tricky column three. And for that, there are two very different ways of answering the question, depending on which view you take of the particular individual will of God. Are you in God's will right now when it comes to non-moral or equally permissible decisions of life? And according to the common view, which I've labeled the master model, you can miss God's will entirely uh, by marrying the wrong person or you know, working at the wrong job or attending the wrong church. But I would guess you haven't got all of those decisions wrong, so let's just say you wouldn't be totally ever out of God's will completely, so we're just going to put a maybe on that question mark or a partly. Some people feel I am totally in God's will in every regard. I'll comment on that a little bit. But when you think about the dozens of daily decisions that you don't even pray about necessarily, uh, you can't miss them all. You know, just by the odds, you're in God's will somehow on some of those if you believe in the master model. But in one or more areas, you might actually be doing something entirely biblical and therefore moral, but according to the master model, you can still be out of God's will. For instance, you, uh, God was trying to lead you to a certain college, but you ignored his leading and you went somewhere else. Or you went to college when God had a different plan for you. So you could be out of God's will. You would then be missing what some people call the center of God's will. Have you heard language like that? The center of God's will. And according to this model, if you miss this will, then you 
possibly would have a lot more pain in your life. And, of course, God doesn't want you to have that. So if you follow this, you expect that a caring God would show you the path of his choice, uh, especially if you're good. Um, but that doesn't mean you always hit it. But, so we give ourselves a maybe. And even in when, when we make the good and perfect choice, uh, we often can't be 100% sure. Back to the clarity problem we talked about last week. By the way, there's some things that I'm going to share today that if you weren't here last week and heard that sermon, they won't necessarily make all the sense that I would wish that it did today. But I can't go back and cover all that ground, but you can, because you can go back and review it and see it if you haven't already. Now, there's another view that we got into briefly last week, and we call it the marriage model. And it generates a very different answer to this question. Are you in God's will as far as non-moral decisions go or ones that are both, where both alternatives are biblical? And the answer is this, always. Always. And you might think, what? I mean, how could anyone say that? Well, you can say it because God himself says that. From the very first decision that ever had to be made, to Adam and Eve, he said that they must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It was an important prohibition for them. But from any other tree, they could eat freely. In other words, choose what they wanted. His complete decision was to give freedom for them to decide. And according to this model, that's the template for all decisions where choices are equally moral. So once the boundary conditions are met, which would for Adam and Eve would be uh, staying away from the one forbidden tree so they can't cross that line. But within that, they were deliberating inside a circle of what would please God. And they were free to choose what they wanted to. And at that point, the precise individual will of God was this. He wants them or us to choose whatever we want. What pleases you will please him. Now, he may know that you could have made a wiser choice, but it's not something that will offend him as far as right and wrong, sin or non-sin. Now, to me, having teased on the master model most of my life, this is awesomely wonderful. Liberating, pain-killing, a load off my shoulders, and uh, it is happy dance time for me. But I know that not everyone reacts to the this news the way I do. And I've thought about that. I know that some people, uh, they want God to decide every choice of theirs, especially in major decisions, because that will be perfect. Whereas my choice, based on my limited wisdom, could very well be a stupid one that I regret later. That has happened to me. Uh, Or maybe they want to guarantee a better future that would be uh, more comfortable and less, you know, more comfort, less calamity. Or maybe they wanted someone to blame if things didn't work out. It, it's God's idea. It wasn't mine. Uh, maybe they wanted the option of shifting responsibility. I read about a gal who didn't want to hurt the feelings of a guy that had asked her out. So she said to him, I prayed and the Holy Spirit told me no. <laughs> I could ask the guys, does it hurt less when it's God who turns you down? <laughs> uh, maybe, I don't know. Uh, Some people, I think, maybe are a little too lazy to do the hard work of finding wisdom for a decision. And so so they would rather, you know, just uh, poke a pin through their Bible and find the answer. Because you can get that right away. It is hard work to really 
find the wisest way to go. And maybe some people just hate making decisions, so it's decidophobia. It's, it's Jake with the couch. Uh, it's too frightening and risking to make decisions, so it's, you want to just find out what God wants. If you could find that out, you'd be okay. Well, in spite of all those understandable reactions, um, the news that we make our own choices actually is thrilling to me, but not for the reason that you might think. It's not that I'm glad that somehow I'm in charge of decisions, that I'm not on God's leash all the time. I know I still have to obey God in all the moral areas, and I delight to do so. I really do. In fact, I actually delight to do God's will in every detail he would want to share, you know, down to the toothpaste we talked about a couple weeks ago, if that's what he wanted, if he wanted to share all of that. But the fact is he doesn't. And the thrill to me comes in this way, to be released from the burden of possible disobedience, where God's wishes were not 100% apparent, but where my heart was as good as I could make it. Did I miss the will? Did I, am I not doing what God wants me to do? And I don't even know. And that burden is lifted by what we're calling the marriage model. It is the freedom and delight of knowing that God is happy with me when I wasn't sure he was. It's the freedom of knowing God is okay with what I offer to him, like my wife making lunch for me, never being under a cloud that she has to worry that she's disappointed me in some big way because she made soup and not a sandwich, because all I said was, make whatever you want to, and I'll love that. Um, Now, if you're not sinning, then God is smiling, Um, and only sin can grieve him. If you make a bad, unwise choice in that way, um, that's a learning process. That's not a sin. And even when you do sin, God accepts you completely based on Christ's blood. So God says, do what you want, not because he's not interested in what you do, or he can't be bothered, or you, you know, you're just too much trouble. But it's just the opposite. He really likes you, he is invested in you, and he's invested in you in every way so that you're not superfluous. You are, you know, you're not just cannon fodder for, you know, his big kingdom plan to take over the world. He wants you, and he wants you to be like him, but he does not need you to be him. This is a partnership. And I admit this is mind-blowing, but it's a partnership between an infinite and perfect groom and a finite and very flawed bride, in fact, a wretch like me. And this truly is amazing grace, a match that could only be made in heaven where he makes a wretch's treasure. So please don't throw a party for the wrong reason. This is not giving you a ticket just to be selfish and self-centered. This freedom comes after some other things, after you have settled the great issues. Who do you belong to? Who do you live for? Everything that we laid out in these previous messages that lead up to this point of having to actually make the decision, you've already factored in what the Scriptures say about it and what your goals and attitudes should be based on the Bible. And so you're going to glorify God. You're going to harmonize this with the five purposes that God has given us for our life. You're going to do what will edify other people, and that's not exactly a ticket to please yourself. And those, those things define then what your heart desires So that is what you really want as a disciple of Christ. And so now then, do what you want. 
You're committed to serve and love God and others as your great delight. So apply those commitments. Now, since uh, choices within that boundary circle are not wrong, they are all permissible. You cannot be out of God's will in such decisions because his will was this. You decide. The center of God's will is a lot bigger maybe than you thought. We liken this to a marriage where the husband husband refuses to treat his wife as his personal slave. This is the marriage model of decision-making. The husband marries a wife to help her blossom and to enjoy how she contributes the many things that can make a marriage special. And she can't blossom when he's going to make all of the decisions for her. And sure, he sets guidelines and standards that have to do with building a God-honoring marriage, but these are meant to enrich her spirit and to uh, shut out influences that could pollute something so potentially wonderful. So when, look, when God came to earth to pursue man, question, was he recruiting an obedient barmaid or was he romancing a bride? Wasn't he looking for a bride? Wasn't he looking for a partner? It's no accident that the church is called the bride of Christ. It's no accident that the greatest commandment in the Bible, according to Jesus, was to love God with all your being, to love him with all your heart, all your soul, to love him with all your mind, all your strength. It's no accident that the culminating point in all of history is the bridal banquet that we find at the end of Revelation. Now, a good wife submits to her husband. She says, as you wish. But a good husband treats her as a competent friend and a partner, and he says to her, as you wish, as well. The issue isn't whether or not we have the right to make our own choices. Do you or don't you? You don't. Not one of them. But God, out of love, out of infinite caring, has used his supreme authority to delegate to you and to me the privilege and responsibility of making choices that will please him and please you. He wants you to bring your character and all the wisdom you can gather, your personality, even your preferences and your heart to this relationship and to life. And he wants you as a real player not a shadow figure who mechanically mimics the movements of God, but, you know, it's a dance. And there is a leader, but there's a living, dancing partner in his arms. And so the Bible gives profound guidelines for motives and attitudes. Motives. (laughs) Glorify God. This is the big stuff. And attitudes. Be humble. Be obedient. This is how you must come to every decision. But then God says, the rest is up to you. Go crazy between the lines and make me proud. And so there are dozens of decisions every day when you're free to choose. And most of them are your life anyway. I was thinking about Jake and the couch. Jake couldn't decide what God's will was week after week. Which which couch did God want him to buy for his wife? He even discussed, it took us three weeks just to work through what is God's favorite color. And finally, I just asked Jake, you know, hey, is God going to be sitting on that couch, Jake? No, you are. Choose something that you like, or better yet, something that would please your wife. God cares, but he cares about you, not the stupid couch. Goodbye already. (laughs) And so God says, you want to buy a car? Buy a car. You pick it. 
You have to drive it. You have to wash it. You have to repair it. So be wise about it. If you happen to choose a lemon, I can make a better person out of you. Uh, But try to pick a good one. Don't pick one where every part in the car makes noise except the horn. I have better ways to refine you. (laughs) You're the one who has to live with it. You're the one who has to sleep with that man or woman. Choose wisely. You're the one who has to work that job every morning at 5 o'clock. Choose wisely. You're the one that has to endure that ministry where no one ever says thank you. Choose wisely. I want you to remember a few verses we referenced last week, mostly involving Paul. I want you to watch for wisdom language. Um where decisions are made without waiting for an edict from God. The first one, 1 Thessalonians 3, he says, we thought it best. He goes, and then he tells us what the decision was. We thought it best. It doesn't say God thought it best. No, we thought it best. We discussed this. We worked through We thought, thought. There's thinking going on here. This is wisdom. Philippians 2, I thought it necessary or needful. I, not God, Not necessarily answer to prayer or anything, but I thought it necessary or needful. How about 1 Corinthians 16? Whomever you may approve, I'll send them. It doesn't say whomever God may approve, but whomever you will approve. You make a decision on this, and then I go along with what you've decided. This is all wisdom language. Acts 6 is another one. Verses 3. 2 through 4, the apostles say, it is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God, that is to meet the needs of the widows. You remember this passage? Now that's a wisdom decision based on what they knew to be their calling as apostles, so this is not desirable. Now there's no God told us, this is just applying their calling as apostles. And then they go on to lay out qualifications for the first deacons, and he tells, they tell everybody, you choose out these people based on these qualifications. It doesn't say, hey, everybody, get on your knees, pray that God will give you the list of names that God chooses. No, say, he says, you choose them, here's the list. Now, you don't need any list of qualifications if God is making all the choices. That's just a roster from God. God may have qualifications, but you don't even need to know them. So God gives us boundaries and perspectives and purposes and principles and priorities and doctrines so that we can use them to make wise decisions that exalt God and help others. Now I want us to go quickly through four facets of what God's individual will is for us, what we call indirect guidance through wisdom. God's individual will for us, we're saying, is that we decide based on all the things that he's told us. And we apply those, put those all together, as well as many things that relate to doing our research and homework on something, so we get a good decision. Now, the first thing we have to say is this applies or is operative where the Bible is silent. Where the Bible is specific or explicit, then that's already God's call, not yours. You just say, okay, Sometimes it's hard to decide exactly what the Bible is teaching or whether it applies to you, but once you realize what it is, then you just say, yes, Lord, as you wish. But we could say uh, the Bible is silent about something. Now, sometimes it is, the Bible may talk about it, but it leaves you deciding between two options that are both biblically okay or more than two. Here's an interesting example from actually from the Old Testament, what freedom looks like in the Old Testament. It's from Deuteronomy 23. 
It addresses the question, where should I live? Now, it says in Deuteronomy that even an escaped slave, probably from an oppressive Gentile master, has the freedom to decide where he will live. It reads, you shall not hand over to his master a slave who has escaped from his master to you. He shall live with you in your midst, in the place which he shall choose in one of your towns where it pleases him. You shall not mistreat him. He's free to find a place he really likes and move there. Now, if that's true for a slave, it might just be true for us. And so for all of us, I just say, don't shred your soul trying and trying to get God's perfect answer for things like that. God gives you the freedom to choose. Use it. Go where it looks best to you and for the things that wisely build God's kingdom. Uh, God will be happy with that. He'll be happy with you, and there won't be any sin to it. And that leads us to number two, which is that this never involves a direct sin against God. Someone says, well, you know, I moved to Parkland and everything came apart. I must be out of God's will. We had plumbing problems and neighbor problems and marital problems. Well, no, you can choose Parkland. You can choose Paris. You can choose Punjabiville. Uh, If you can find it on your map, it's your choice. Any of those is okay with God. One choice may be less wise than others, maybe even foolish when you look back at it, (laughs) you know, hindsight, and you can live to regret some moves that you have made. And you may find out later that you... uh, Maybe you even had some ungodly motives, or maybe you transgressed some things on the, as far as God's moral will goes that you didn't even know about. But on its face, where you choose to live is not a matter of sin. And the same for all non-moral or equally moral decisions. This is because a sin involves stepping over a stated boundary, missing the mark. And for that, it would have to be specified in the Bible. Paul says it like this. Romans 4.15, where there is no law, no stated regulation, neither is there violation. You don't have to worry about sinning in this area. And that's why we're saying you can't be out of God's will when it comes to these decisions that are unspecified in the Bible. And then there's facet number three. This may include unseen divine influences. So God has given you freedom, but he still has a sovereign blueprint to accomplish behind the scenes. And so God can even use dreams or inner impressions to make us susceptible to going A instead of B or C. God can secretly nudge you. This has happened to me where I sent the exact amount of money to somebody that the other, the same amount of money they were praying for just to prove to them that God hears them and loves them and not just that, that I love them. Does that make sense? Has that happened to you? Well, God can do that. And I have dreams sometimes. Mostly they don't make any sense. Like the time I had a dream that Earl got up on the platform with Billy Graham when Billy Graham was preaching, and he did this sweet little dance in a pair of canary yellow pants. (laughs) Now, I don't need to grab any particular message from that, except that maybe I'm nuts or Earl is. You can vote on that later. Uh, But I can't rule out that God can cause you to think a certain way that's conducive to a certain decision being made. After all, there is still God's sovereign will, and his will must be done. But sometimes you pray for these nudges. When you pray for the surgeon before you have surgery, it's not that 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 surgeon will be there and say, God, what should I do next? Okay, and now what should I cut here? No. But if when we say God guide the surgeon's hands, we mean God behind the scenes inside this man will be helping him do better than he would have otherwise. We depend on God to do things like that. 
God does a massive amount of unseen nudging, particularly in two areas. Who is going to be born and who is going to be born again? They are not going to be accidents. (laughs) He's not leaving that up to you and me in random choices. Now, they might feel random because God is doing this behind the scenes. But nevertheless, God is working hard to make sure that everything moves the way he wants. That's God's sovereignty. Now, what you must concentrate on is not the sovereign will of God, because that he doesn't tell you usually, or the individual leading that maybe you were wanting. You don't focus on that either. Your focus will be on God's moral will, because when we say there's something that's, uh, you know, are you in God's will uh, as far as sovereign? Always. Are you on this side over here on, on individual choices? Are you in God's will? Always. It's that middle one where it's partly, like I need to grow. I'd like to say more and more, Although I do know that, you know, the, the more you obey, the, the, sometimes the less you feel like you are. But nevertheless, that is where there's room for growth, and that's where we concentrate. And if we deal with that, or we're constantly in the Bible, and we, we know and we care about his purposes and standards. And so then if there's a girl that you would like to marry, and she meets all the biblical qualifications, then marry her. Don't tie yourself in knots trying to find the perfect one, you know, Miss Wright. Tie the knot with the one you want if she'll have you. And be amazed if she will. But be sure that you do some premarital counseling about couches. (laughs) Now here's number four. Make the decision by applying an informed, spirit-filled mind to your opportunities. Wisdom for a great decision comes from being filled with the word, being filled with the spirit, then doing what you want in a situation for the wisest of reasons. We're going to talk about what that process might look like in a minute. Now, what should be your response to this teaching on the way of wisdom? There are three things, and they're in your notes. First, you pray for wisdom and proceed confidently without rushing and avoid setting fleeces. Um, So it's time to move forward. Now, Look, you can overanalyze a decision. You get the old paralysis of analysis. That would be Jake. Uh, Don't get hung up on not making a move until you know God's perfect will. You don't really need that. This is finally the time to pull out Yogi Berra's advice. When you get to a fork in the road, take it. But one thing that you should not rush, rush past, and that is that you must always pray. And what I mean by that is not, you're not praying for, you know, God revealed to me in a cloud or handwriting on the wall exactly what I should do. But you're praying that God would remind you of relevant scripture that you might have ignored because you're looking for wisdom here. Pray that you will become aware of important factors that might sway the decision one way or another that you haven't seen yet. Possible ripples that could affect other people. And you weren't thinking that broadly at that point. Or pray that you have honestly perceived your own motives, whether good or bad. And then pray that you will be able to carry the burden of a new direction. Abraham Lincoln said, I have been driven many times to my knees by the overwhelming conviction that I had nowhere else to go. My wisdom and that of all about me seemed insufficient for the day. You say, Lord, I'm going to step out this direction, but I'm going to need your help to be able to do it well. But now I need to add a caution when you pray, because some people, and this would be people that follow the master model, they're tempted to rig up a way to get a quick answer from God. What should I, you know, what do you want me to do? 
So I want you to remember this. Avoid setting fleeces or any other ways that kind of force a shortcut to finding God's perfect direction, like poking the pin through the Bible we already talked about, you know, the pinpoint method or the breezy window method. Some people are tempted to read God's direction in coincidences. I read about a man whose car ran out of gas in front of the Philippine embassy in Washington, D.C. He took that as a sign of God's will that he should become a missionary to the Philippines. Now, become a missionary. If you want to be a missionary, that's a righteous thing. It fits just fine with God's moral will. But whatever possessed this guy to make the jump, this, this leap from running out of gas at a certain place and then being called as a missionary, I don't know. It could have just as well been a call to, to uh, order out Filipino food, you know, have Uber give it to you uh, because you're stuck there, you know, you don't have gas. But, you know. but it sounds more like a call to check his fuel gauge more often. Now, if you're running down the street and you slip on a banana peel and you land on a map of Brazil... Is that a call to go to South America? More likely, it means that you ought to organize a garbage cleanup campaign in your neighborhood. The Bible gives you absolutely no warrant to interpret circumstances as God's guidance. There's not one instance I can find in the Bible. Uh, If you know of one, please point it out to me. But I can't see anywhere where some Bible character received guidance that way. I can count the instances on less than one finger. All right. Scripture does not give you methods for cranking up the volume of the voice of God, where you force him to communicate to you somehow from the spirit world, that would be a seance. Now, another way that some people uh, sort of set up circumstances to force God to uh, give them some direction is setting out fleeces. They foolishly follow the irresponsible example of Gideon. Uh, So maybe you know the story of Gideon. Maybe not everybody does, but uh, you can read that in Judges 6. This is where this guy set out a fleece in order to encourage his faltering heart. If the fleece remained miraculously dry or became miraculously wet, then he would know God had confirmed what he should do. Now, you should know that Gideon was doing this as a man in needless doubt. In fact, he, he, he went through this thing twice. Even though God accommodated this arrangement, Gideon was in the wrong. He had already been given direct, precise careful, specific instructions by God. He didn't need this fleece to find God's will. It had zero to do with guidance. It had everything to do with doubt. And the other thing about it is that this was a genuine miracle that he was asking for. Now, you may have known people that set up situations where God is supposed to communicate his will by governing prearranged circumstances. Uh, Someone is driving down Pacific Avenue. And he says, if the light is green when I get to the next light, then I'm supposed to make this decision. But if it's red, then I'm supposed to make that decision. Now, it's got to be green or red, so there's no miracle here. It's just a matter of odds. So it is no different from flipping a coin, heads or tails. There's no indication God was even paying attention. Gary Friesen, in his trailblazing book, Decision Making in the Will of God, I think I can put it up on this screen. I want everybody to buy this book. All right? It's a fat little monster, but it is, if you have any questions in this area, this will help immensely. And it has extra chapters on making making choices regarding to marriage or job and things like that. Decision-making and the will of God, Gary Friesen. Order it when you get home today. Amazon, 
I don't know. I don't think it's that much. Um, and they don't give me a cut, but uh, you should have that book. All right. Well, in, in the book, he talks about fleece dating. He's not for it, but he used to be. And maybe you gentlemen use something like this, uh, or you still do. So he writes this. On those occasions when I did not know which girl the Lord might want me to take out, I would set up these providential signs in advance. If no one answered the phone, that meant God wanted me to call her back later. A busy signal was a closed door. I shouldn't call back. Maybe some other fellow was asking her out. If she answered but turned me down, then God did not want me to take her out. Duh. (laughs) And if she answered the phone and accepted my invitation, she was the one. That is such a bogus way (laughs) of trying to discover God's will. So here's Gideon. God, God accommodated Gideon's frailty, but there's zero promise that he would ever do that for anyone else. And in fact, you never see this anywhere else in the Bible. Don't do that. And of course, such schemes have relevance only if you're working from the master model. I want to comment, too, on the use of inner impressions. Response two would be this, that we should bounce inner impressions or desires off counselors and authorities. And these would be wise people that we know, people that have tossed and turned and crashed and burned and lived and learned. It shouldn't be just your best friend who always agrees with you no matter what you say. That's not going to help. Proverbs says there's safety in the abundance of counselors. You can count on others in Christ's body to help you with decisions when you need it. We're all in the same boat on a stormy sea, and we owe one another a terrible loyalty. So listen to this. This is a statement from Gary Friesen. Impressions are real. Believers experience them, but they are not authoritative. And why not? Because by definition, they are subjective. They're private. They're not subject to much verification. And we are subject to, you know, the old deceitful heart that we talked about last week. So they could come from various sources, not just from God, chiefly from your own guts, you know, what we call the gut feeling. And we all have them, and they're not unimportant. But I have to insist, the only way that you know for sure that you're hearing God's voice, if that's what you're looking for from that, is that it's something you have read in the inspired Bible. Now, some people tell me, I got this impression, I know it was God's voice. And I would just say, no, you don't. Because so many people have told me that where it was just, it totally didn't work out that way at all. You know that you think you know. I can't argue with you. I mean, maybe it was God. But you don't know that unless it is corroborated by a more objective source, either by the scriptures themselves or by competent counselors and authorities. You're still down to wisdom. There's the third response that we should exercise uh, when we have, we're called to use our God-given freedom, go with the alternative that appeals to you as the wisest. I want you to add those three words to, to your notes there, as the wisest, because I want to say appeals to you. I don't just mean emotionally, like you're supposed to be impulsive about this. As the wisest, in other words, you've done due diligence on your motives, your attitudes, you've looked at Scripture, and now, okay, it's an open thing. You know, this college or that college, this guy or that guy, this job or that job. Does one of those options attract you as more, uh, more wise, the wiser way to go? Just choose it and do it. Your feelings and your preferences play a part in that. But look, your feelings aren't telling you, just to go back to something else, aren't telling you what God wants and chooses. Your feelings are telling you what you want and what you would choose. 
but I'm saying you choose that as an offering to God. Remember, you've already adjusted your motives by getting solid answers to the four questions that we've been talking about. You've checked Scripture as far as it goes. You, then your heart is to honor the God who made you and bought you. And this isn't you replacing God on His throne. This is you using your mind and abilities that God gave you to offer Him something you're not embarrassed to hold before Him. This is using sanctified sense. And here's what that looks like. And now, I might, let me say this before I start describing this a little bit. This is something from Bruce Walkie. You know, so here you are. You've got two things in front of you. Um, now, which one do you really want? Now, this is when you start suffering a little bit. The kind of suffering I can't take away. All right? Because you can't choose everything. Um, not everything you even want is wise. So that little guy... The cupcake looks better, but then it'll be the wisest one to choose. So there are wisdom issues here. You weigh various things. Now, if it's time for dessert, do it. You know, there's timing here. What would you rather have? Now, I would rather have the apple, I think. I'm saying that for my wife's benefit. And if my mother were still alive, she would just cherish me for saying that. But I really want the cupcake. But anyway... <laughs> Here are some things that, and these are from, uh, actually from uh, Bruce Waltke. He has counseled, agonized decision makers like us, who, to, and he tells us we should do certain things after applying all relevant scripture, answering all the questions, you know, especially the why questions. And then he says, the first thing is, make a decision that fits your giftings, burdens, and dreams. Now, there's a little pain in this because you don't have all the giftings that you might want. You might say, well, I would love to do this, but no, this is the gifting God gave you. And so there's a restriction to that, as well as an open door of, of power and blessing that can come through you. And your burden, some things you're burdened for, uh, you can be very burdened about human trafficking, and you can do a lot about it, but that bur- the more you, you stir up that burden, the more burdens you get, because that doesn't go away. Or you can have something like this, your dreams, not all, all dreams are for this life. There's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. I have a great dream to play the cello so that God weeps when I play, not because I'm doing it so bad, because well, I can always do that. Um, but dreams, some dreams uh, that you have, let's say you have a dream that you would always have a, a wonderful husband and a big family, but you're never married, or you are and you can't have kids or you know, whatever, and that doesn't happen, and you, so you find other ways to make that dream uh, be expressed through your life. You understand what I'm talking about? So there's some pain in all of this, these choices, because I could do this, but I can't do that. Look at the second one. Let your future be informed by your past that is based on what you've learned and experienced or even your wounds and failures, what you've done well and enjoyed in the past. You can do something called a life map of your past. I'm giving you a website here, soulcare.net. And I printed out instructions for doing one of these life maps here if you'd like to make a copy, but you can download this yourself. And I've done this exact process before in a seminar, and I've actually taken some of you through it years ago. But it helps you to look at where your life has been and where God was involved and the things you did well and enjoyed and and things that maybe you've even forgotten about that really are you. And you look at those and you say, well, these kind of help define how things could go in the future. 
the third thing is make sense of your circumstances. And sometimes those are limiting circumstances. You think, okay, uh, I could do this, but I have commitments that I've already made, like to my family. Um, so I can't go full-time to a, as a missionary to Iceland because my, my kids are in school and these things go on. Or what you have to factor in your income or lack of it, your indebtedness, your health and your age, your opportunities, your maturity or lack thereof, your unchangeable weaknesses and disabilities, your reputation or lack thereof. If you understand what I'm saying. Sometimes decisions we've made in the past were so bad that they have limited in many ways the things that we can do now. And you have to think about all of that in making a new a decision and going a new way. And the fourth thing is to craft an overall strategy. That is sort of a life map of your future, keeping in mind that God can override it. But here's, I hear this in every planning seminar, those who fail to plan, plan to fail. So I was thinking about this. When do we sit down and we say, these are the things I plan to learn and how and when. These are the things I plan to read. These are spiritual disciplines that I need to put into my life. This is the scripture that I plan to memorize. You know, if you never schedule those things in and plan them out, you will never do them. Right? You say, I would love to be 10 years from now, I would love to have learned 100 new verses. That's only 10 a year. That's not even one a month. Well, next month you're going to have to start doing it, or 10 years from now you'll still know the same number you know today. How your schedule will work, an employment plan, a house plan, uh, a financial plan, a retirement plan. Sign up for Financial Peace University. It starts on September 19th. I don't know if Don Gallion is here today, but his sign-up is here, and that's going to start, and that would be a wonderful thing. A health and fitness plan. Like you can complain, you know, I'm 20 pounds overweight, I hate myself. So when are you going to start working out? Uh, A ministry preparedness plan, a missions involvement plan, a relationship plan. You could go on and on. I'm just saying, in some ways you have to say, okay, uh, there are big decisions, but there are tons of little decisions that take every day to, to accomplish something. And if you don't make those kinds of plans, then you plan to fail. And then you make yourself accountable for whatever this. And it's, it's hard work to make up a plan like this, but it's very helpful. And then when you've done all that, then do what you love. Do what makes you come alive. Do what interests you. Sign up. November 10th, SHAPE Seminar, right, Nate? He's going to teach that. And as far as ministry choices, it's fabulous. And uh, you can apply that to so many other decisions that you might make. Now, when you're at this stage of a decision, you have to actually make the call. And so we have two final fork questions. One is, have you invited relevant counsel and direction? Make sure that you consult with people that have already negotiated the rapids of the, you know, the river you're about to go down. And then a final question in order to get a wise decision. When the Bible doesn't give you an exact course, have you done your homework on the acceptable alternatives in a patient and prayerful way? So when God says, as you wish, it's not a ticket to be impulsive. It's an open door to get wise. And so do your homework. Uh, I heard somebody went on a long, long distance to go to college, ended up not being able to get one course in the area that they wanted to study because they hadn't done their homework. So you've got to go this college or that college. It's not just which one is cheaper. You know, get a catalog, make a visit. That's pretty common sense, but I'm amazed how many people don't use common sense. And a lot of wisdom is just 
being smart about it. Well, let's wrap this up. Think about the decision makers that we met when we started this study. I wonder what's the most important thing that you would tell each of them, like a first move in the right direction. Think about Joe, works at Boeing, hates his job, needs more appreciation. To Joe, I would just say this. He needs to change his attitudes before he changes his jobs because the problem isn't the job. The The problem is him. And then if he changes his jobs, fine. But he needs to work on himself first. Sarah. Sarah is still in high school, but she wants to be a doctor. She can't imagine how she can do that with, and still have a successful family life. She needs a mentor, a professional woman who is also married. Like my daughter Jenny. She's a, denti- a great dentist and a great mom of four. But how does she do that? She, Sarah needs a mentor. Mary. Yeah, this is a tough one. Mary is married to Bill. She wants to be a missionary, not Bill. What they need to do is just drop the master model and start over. Otherwise, that they're always going to live under the cloud of being out of God's will. And she will always blame her husband. Ray and Janet. When retirement comes, what's their plan? Well, they should be very careful about moving to a warm border town in Arizona. Great place to play shuffleboard, but, uh, but you hate to have immigrants running through you know, while you're doing that. I don't know. I would, I would not want to work, uh, live there right now. But I think maybe that they should just pull their grandkids and kids. Or us. In fact, this is, I thought about this. How many of you would vote against Ray and Janet moving away? Raise your hand. All right. So now we have a new way of discovering the will of God. Ask the audience. <laughs> But seriously, I think the best first move for them would just be to explore their best desires for others. Let that guide what they do with the freedoms that come with retirement. But what would I tell them all, all of them? It's the same thing I would say as what we shared, what I shared when we started this series. The main thing is still the main thing. And that is treasuring the glory and the supremacy and the presence of Christ. Wow. He wants you, God wants you to have the sublime joy of knowing and loving and listening to and treasuring his beloved son. It's what you were made for, what you were chosen for. The son is the fulfillment of all the deep longings that God planted in your soul. You as his eternal partner. And if you substitute anything for him, then you waste the life that you were given. That's how we ended the first sermon of this series. And so you can have wonderful, wise decisions about jobs and marriage and ministry and, and retirement. and They mean nothing if you miss the main thing. And the main thing is never what you do. It's whom you do it for. It's for Christ. It's not what you do. It's who you become like Christ. The biggest mistake in life is putting all your focus on you and your decisions leaving nothing for being just satisfied and content with the Lord who died for you. It's what he did for you. And it breaks my heart when I see Christians labor day after day in prayer and worry over buying a house or finding a spouse, but they never spend 10 minutes imploring God to make Christ wildly real to them. I wanted to end with a great story about the will of God. The story of 
someone struggling to do what he knows they should do and how he resolved that in honor of God in an honoring way, but at great cost to himself. I, I would have even used a fictional story if that would bring this to a close on this note of, of, of sacrifice. Say, I'm, I'm for God. God, is, it's all for him. But as it turns out, I didn't have to go to some made-up story. I discovered that every truly moving story that I know of, whether ancient or modern, had these elements. Struggle, and then honor, and then self-sacrifice. So which one do I tell? And then I realized that the greatest verse in all the Bible and the will of God was such a story. The whole story wrapped up in a single tear-drenched sentence. A prayer. And it's this. Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I wish, but as you wish. This is Gethsemane. The world's most unwasted life, the life of Jesus, was poured out as he drank the cup of divine judgment. He drank that cup because he had lived his life end to end Major to tomb, all for God and for us. If you came to me and you said, Bruce, you're one of my pastors, what is the will of God for me? What, what do you see in my future? And I could say to you, I only know one thing for sure about your future. It's the one thing I'm most excited about for you. It's the one thing you can know for sure. Your life, your future life. Your present life is Jesus himself, your priceless treasure. Everything else is negotiable, but not that. I heard Fernando Ortega this week when we were in Nashville singing this simple song that he wrote 20 years ago. You may know this song when I start singing it. If you want to join in, please do that. In the morning when I rise... In the morning when I rise, in the morning when I rise, give me Jesus, give me Jesus, give me Jesus. You can have all this world, but give me Jesus second verse when I'm alone. <clears throat> Some of you are alone a lot. And when I am alone, and when I am alone, and when I am alone, give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. You can have all this world, but give me Jesus. And when I come to die, and when I come to die, can't sing this without thinking of somebody that you all have been praying for. And when I come to die, give me Jesus. 
Give me Jesus, give me Jesus, you can have all this world. Give me Jesus. And then you know this one. I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather be his than have riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than houses or lands. I'd rather be led by his nail-pierced hands than to be the king in a vast domain or be held in sin's dread sway. I'd rather have Jesus than anything, sorry, this world affords today. Amen. Thank you, Lord.